June 30, 2007, a twin-prop Bombardier Q400 plane touches down on a small Channel Island of Jersey. Its steps descend, and with them, a stocky, well-built, middle-aged man named Curtis Warren, or Cocky to cops and associates. He's been in Dutch prisons for around a decade, a free man for just two weeks. But he's not about to go straight. Special branch police stop Warren at the baggage conveyor, Ask him what a man once top of Interpol's most wanted is doing in a small, tourist-friendly island off the coast of Normandy. Never want to back out of a confrontation, Warren replies, coolly. I could take Britain back. We could take Jersey easily. Welcome to the Underworld Podcast. Welcome back to the Underworld Podcast. I am Danny Gold, and I'm here with Sean Williams. This is the podcast where we dive into the world of transnational organized crime and all the fun things that go with it. Sorry for the break we just took. We might actually have a little bit more of a break coming because we're actually working on, on some deals and something exciting that I think is going to let us kind of do more of this and, and do it better. So stay with us. Things are going to get pretty, I think, solid from here on out. Yeah. and. Um... As it's been up for a while, we've got the merch as well. So we've got teas, uh, the mugs. People love the mugs. <laughs> and uh, mugs, The mugs look good, man. Yeah, they're cool, right? Yeah, I really like yeah. them. I've got a couple myself. Um, yeah, there's all kinds of stuff online. So, yeah, if you visit our website, underworldpod.com, there's tons of stuff you can choose from. Um, and, yeah, I, like you said, I, I think we've got some really cool stuff coming up in the pipeline. So, uh, yeah, this... Uh, this could be there could be a little break after this one, but yeah, I'm excited about this one. I, I've been kind of looking into this guy for a while. Um, I kind of wanted to do an episode on Curtis Warren for like, a couple of reasons, really. Like one is that outside Liverpool, his hometown, he's kind of pretty unknown, um, despite being Britain's richest gangster and kind of like really interesting history that takes in South American cartels a lot. Yeah, I have no idea who he is, but you know, so far I gotta say I, I like the cut of his jib. Guys got guys got a good jib. Yeah, we pride ourselves on that jib. Yeah, I I I actually tried to write about him. I think it was last year. I put together some pitch, and uh, as usual, you know, we work for free a lot as freelance journalists, and this one didn't come off. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, I was just kind of obsessed with how he tried to take over this entire island, and I thought, well, you know, people in other countries would be interested to hear what this place is like. Um. And I'm going to get into that in a bit because. Uh, yeah, I, I go into some of the peculiarities, I guess you could say, about my country, of which there are millions. Um, so yeah, here it goes with Curtis Cocky Warren. The nickname could use a little bit work. I mean, I understand why, but it just doesn't yeah. really flow. You know? I agree, I agree. I mean, does cocky, is, is that a word in the States? Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right, cool. All right, it's one of few words that's going to come across in this one, so I reckon there's going to be a lot of translation. Um, but this is like, I want to kick it off with a pretty gung-ho description of Warren by a Guardian journalist, John Sweeney, in 2000. Uh, if you don't know John Sweeney, look him up online. He's like this kind of well-known for doing these documentaries where he kind of screams in people's faces. Uh, it can, it can you know, rub people up the wrong way. <laughs> and, you might, and you might guess it from this quote. Anyway, it's nigh uncertain that Cocky is the richest criminal in British history. Some of it stashed in tax havens and Swiss banks. Some of it placed in a beautiful flat in Liverpool's fancy whopping dock development, bang opposite the Customs Museum. A small fraction on motors, normally a quietly unfussy Lexus, aircon as standard, 
some of it on office blocks, some on 200 properties in the northwest, mainly let out to DHS claimants. That's, uh, that's the dull. Not forgetting, they said, a mansion in the northwest, a villa in the Netherlands, a casino to, or two in Spain, a disco in Turkey. The interesting question is, where's all that money now? I almost need like an American English translation on that writing. Like what? Nigh on certain. I mean, he's just butchering the beautiful language, you know. I, I'm, he's he's old school, man. And and anyway, you you didn't even know midday earlier. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> noon, noon, yeah. And he continues anyway. Cocky with his desperate damn pecs, his head shaved as round and smooth as a billiard ball, and his thick black eyebrows marching across his face like <clears throat> Christ, asylum-seeking millipedes. Looks like the original children's TV arch-villain, the evil hood, the jerky limb puppet whose eyes backlit in Thunderbirds, trying but failing to throw a spanner in the works of international rescue. The real hood, however, was much more successful. No disrespect to my, my guy Sweeney here, but, like, calm down. I mean, what even, yeah. like, asylum-seeking <laughs> millipedes? I know, like... Dude, this is 99% terrible. 99% of the time, I've got no time for that phrase, but I just want to let stuff like that sing in this episode. This is true crime after all, right? Yeah, Jesus. And Thunderbirds? Does that even ring a bell? Is that a thing in the States? I don't, I, I don't know, man. All right. Uh, yeah, I just enjoyed it. Anyway, back to the story. Curtis Warren, he's born in the neighborhood of Toxteth in Liverpool in 1963. Tuxtith is one of these old kind of terrace or row house estates that sprouted in the 19th century when workers at Liverpool's factory make it one of the world's richest cities. An Irish flea in the potato famine, which many people now think of as a form of genocide. They're joined by Europeans and Chinese fresh off the docks. Liverpool still has a Chinatown now, home to about 10,000 people of Chinese background, by the way. It's one of my favourite places in the UK, Liverpool, like such a cool place. Yeah, I've never, I've never got into the English North, you know, Liverpool, Manchester, all that sort of old factory towns, but I've always been kind of fascinated by it. Like the history is super interesting. It reminds me of America's Rust Belt. Yeah. But yeah. Is, is Liverpool also, is that Peaky Blinders or is that Manchester? No, I think Peaky Blinders is actually Birmingham. They've all got like Birmingham, grummy accents right. and stuff. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Um, but this, yeah, Liverpool's great. I mean, like, I, I'm from London, obviously, but I, we used to go up to, like, Sheffield, Leeds, Manchester, Liverpool for, like, raves when we were younger, and they were off the hook. Um, some pretty wild nights there. But, yeah, I, like you say, these kind of, like, northern cities, these the factories are shutting down in, like, the middle of the 20th century. Like, folks have to go on the dole. Uh, like, by the 80s, when, when Warren's a teenager, like, this place is less this exciting new development than it was back when it was built. And it's more like, yeah, like you say, like a, a rust belt. Um, anyway, if you want to learn more about that, you can like chuck a stone at any Ken Loach movie collection or like there's a million Hackney BBC docos that you can learn about. Play up north. Um, TLDR, Toxic, where Warren's growing up. It's a pretty grim place, right? The Beatles, that's over. And he grows up in relative poverty. And What's more, Warren is of mixed race heritage in a pretty white and racist city, country, you know. Um, the son of a mostly absent Caribbean father who comes in with the Norwegian Merchant Navy and a Liverpudlian mother, uh, with an older brother called Ramon or Raymond and a sister named Maria. And I want to point out that a lot of this episode actually comes from two major sources. One is Peter Walsh, who's this really great journalist who wrote the brilliant book uh, Drug War, The Secret History 
which I've been piling through of late. Like it's it's a bible for the British drug industry, history, law enforcement. And he also co-wrote this 2011 biography of Warren called Cocky. And yeah, I mean, we'll we'll find out. We we pretty much do know why Warren's got that nickname, right? Yeah, I mean, I think we can tell the whole opening of "I'm here to take over Britain," like you know, kind of spells it out. Yeah, yeah, I, I think that's 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 pretty comprehensive. And uh, beside those books, which we'll put on the reading list, of course, um, I'm using a ton of info the Liverpool Echo has reported down the years. It's one of the UK's best local papers, the Echo. I know a few journalists who've had great times there. Big up your local newspapers, guys. Um, yeah, definitely. Uh, yeah, for sure. One other thing as well. Um, it might become apparent further down the line with this episode, but I've avoided writing about famous gangsters from Britain, mostly because the majority of stuff about organized crime there is like really parochial or well-trodden or just a bit like hero worshipy. All these like liver-spotted old boxes with sovereign rings going on about how they used to smash fellas up in the East End. Or like Rob Banks with sawn offs, even though ninety percent of that never happened. I think Guy Ritchie has a lot to answer for with this stuff too. Kind of creating this like whole aesthetic about what's basically just a bunch of small time crooks. And there's, I mean, I, I like those films. Don't get me wrong, but there's this like whole industry, the cottage industry of low rent Cockney geezer movies about guys in leather jackets, effing and jeffing. Yeah, but rock and roll. Folks in the UK, yeah, rock and roller rules. Rock and roller, yeah. We need, we need a sequel, man. I mean, his last couple films were terrible, but Rock and Roll, that movie, Owens. He's, he's got this new one coming out. I mean, it's, of course it's got Jason Statham, but I'm, I'm going to save that for a flight. That's exactly the kind of shit I listen to <laughs> a read on, well, watch on flights. Um, but yeah, I, I, I would call it like Danny Dyer I guess. Um, but watch Sexy Beast. That's like the best. That's the best British gangster movie ever. Dude, Football Factory, man. That was, that was big when I was in college. That was a... Uh... Uh, yeah that one kind of that was a good one do you have you like when you were in england did you report on this stuff at all did you ever do any like soccer hooligans or or gangster stuff or was it already just kind of overdone by that point i was a bit young then i actually like studied the football factory as, as part of my degree weirdly in this like movie section of it i went to a pretty crap uni um <laughs> but yeah, I, I mean, I've I've done some reporting and I used to work for like a local paper in the East End of London and it was pretty rough. So I did some reporting on that stuff, but nah, I'll go back and like write some 10,000 word masterpiece on it when I'm about 50. But um, yeah, I was out of there by the time I could have done stuff that decent. Um, anyway, yeah, Warren, like, I mean, he's, he's different to all of this, right? And we're going to find out why. I mean, he grows up in his tough, poor hood. And he gets in trouble from an early age. Like when he's 12, he's nicked for driving a stolen car. I mean, like 12, can you even see over the steering wheel at that age? Um, he's into theft, low level stuff, violence, attacking the police. And eventually he gets jailed for five years for his role in a failed armed robbery. And like, he actually does another stint for, and I'm quoting the drug war book here, thieving, a thieving trip to Switzerland. Which, I don't know, that's pretty bloody vague, but okay, sure, he's just like bumming around Europe, robbing stuff. Why else would someone go to Switzerland? I guess you either take the money or out, yeah. or you stick it in. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Um, now, by the 1980s, yeah, Liverpool's drug scene is changing a lot. Um, traditionally, it's a place of weed with a strong anti-heroin stance. Uh, that's Toxtiff, by the way. There's this famous graffiti slogan from the time that says, this is Toxtiff, not, not Crockstiff, strictly ganja. 
Fucking hell, that is a tongue twister. In reference to another Liverpool suburb that is, by all accounts, still like a terrible place and known as one of the UK's worst places to live. Well, by the 1980s, that's no longer the case. Heroin is flooding into Liverpool, getting hold of young people with poor education, no support from the Tory government, and not much in the way of work. This is a really bleak period in the UK's history. Industry is dying. The miners are striking. Maggie Thatcher's mates with Reagan, strangling the working classes. Even on the telly, like, everything just looks brown, grey, smoky and crap. No wonder heroin gets into Britain's major cities. At the same time, uncoincidentally, the rave scene's taking off, punk's going off too, and with them the use of ecstasy, which is kind of pump priming the market for cocaine. God, I'm doing a few tongue twisters here. Yeah. This is house music, new order, the hacienda. The northwest of the UK is pretty much the epicenter of this culture for a while. By 1995, the UK government reckons 1.5 million ecstasy pills are being taken every weekend. That's quite a lot for a population under 60 mil. I guess a lot of folks are double dropping. I always thought the rave scene from the UK in that era looked really, it looked really fun, man. Like in my mind, it, it kind of crosses with like the early days of like the internet and other 90s culture. And I kind of wish I had experienced it a bit there. Oh uh, yeah, it looks incredible. Like those early videos of the Hacienda look, just look unbelievable. I mean, it was still going when I was young. Um, I used to go to some pretty crazy like old warehouse raves and stuff. And it still happens, but especially in London, like a lot of, I don't know, NIMBYs killed it. Don't like any sound in their uh, city. So yeah, I don't know what's going on in the raves. But anyway, as per Walsh's book, quote, there was no intrinsic reason why Liverpool should also feature so heavily in the large scale cocaine importation of the 90s and beyond. That it did rests on a combination of factors. The expertise already acquired in smuggling, a familiarity with the workings of the transatlantic sea trade, a lack of legitimate work opportunities and high unemployment during the 80s, creating a pool of idle labour, and connections in the Netherlands with what might be called the Scouse criminal diaspora, facilitated by the emergence of budget airlines and extra ferry services across the North Sea and the Channel. Basically, Liverpool's big, it's poor. It's got a massive port, history, mates on the continent, and tons of young people desperate to earn a pound note. What, like the Scouse diaspora, I know what Scouse means, but is it just like loads of Liverpool people moving to Amsterdam? Yeah, pretty much. I mean, I think we, we've mentioned it before, and I'm going to get into it here, but everything is coming in on those ports in like Rotterdam, in Antwerp, in Belgium. That is where the money is. So yeah, loads of these crooks from, uh, from the Northwest just heading there and making, making some money. Um, and yeah, I, I guess like Scouse, uh, it's worth doing a word about these weird British place names of people or demonyms. Um, being like a million years old, the UK is full of these weird names for local people, like Scousers in Liverpool, which I think comes from this old hot pot like mill, which was once popular there. Um, some of these are like viewed kind of slurs these days, especially when they come out of the mouth of a Cockney like me. And yes, I am an actual Cockney born in the sound of the Bowbells, but You've got others like Geordies from Newcastle, Smoggies in Middlesbrough, Yam Yams in Wolverhampton, Tafts in Wales. I'm just saying, if, if you hear these words, you know what they are. And these aren't even the official ones, right? You've got Loiners in Leeds, Salopians in Shrewsbury, Shrewsbury, I don't even know how to say that one, Oxonians in Oxford. The UK is basically this giant Dungeons and Dragons, right? With the kings and queens and lords and ladies and all that bullshit. I've had just about enough of all this gibberish. Yeah, there's a little more to come. Sorry about that. Um, anyway, digression. Warren. So 
Liverpool's changing when he's a young man, and by 1990, he's out of prison and running a firm supplying bouncers or doormen to Liverpool's club scene. And as you can imagine, this is a pretty good way to make connections in the drug trade. And Warren, who's known for being ruthless, he's meeting people in person. Like He loves doing that, and he has a photographic memory. He's the kind of perfect guy to take British drugs to a new level. One of the reasons he's so good at trafficking is he keeps on the down low, doesn't use phones when he doesn't have to. No social media. Yep, you know it. Don't Instagram your crimes. We gotta send him a t-shirt. Yeah, he can have a t-shirt. Mine's him a hat too. Um, so around the 80s, two Liverpudlians reach out to Arnaldo Lucho Botero from, Corum- uh, from Colombia, who's this major supplier of cocaine, and he's allied with the Cali cartel. Botero's going to be arrested for a later massive shipment into Holland and sentenced to six years, and I guess he's well hidden these days. Hidden like he turned informant or he went on the run or what? Yeah, I don't know. I, I couldn't find him anywhere else. So I guess he's maybe informant, maybe went on the run, maybe six feet under. I don't know. Could be anywhere. Um, anyway, these guys then make a deal for two boatloads of coke to cross the Atlantic to the UK via the Netherlands. And a Columbia-Britain coke network is established. But cops are watching, nab one of the guys, and the other has to leave his shipment in the docks to rot. Now... It seems like Warren's in with these guys, right? And in 1991, he makes deals to take over their top spot, getting cocaine into England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland. He makes sure he's as close to the source as possible to get the best wholesale prices, and he just wants to keep on top of everything. He never gets high or drinks. He's in it for the money, the power, and the sex. And he has a string of girlfriends while getting ready for the biggest score of his career. So, 1991, September. Warren and an associate, the Middlesbrough-based Brian Charrington, another major narco-trafficker. They sail to France, then to Venezuela, where they broker a deal to bring over a huge amount of cocaine, smuggled inside lead ingots. UK cops are tipped off, but they get the tip too late and the shipment gets through customs successfully. A second £2,000 one is tracked. But here's the twist. Charrington is a police informant. He's even told a handler that, quote, 500 kilos has gone off under the noses of customs. Nice work there, HMRC. That stands for Her Majesty's Revenue and Customs, by the way. Dungeons and Dragons. The second shipment passes neatly through British customers at Felixstowe, which is a major port on the East Coast, and ends up in a warehouse in the Midlands. Then it's moved to Cheshire, close to Liverpool. The investigators are onto it, and one night they break into its warehouse, empty all the ingots, and reseal them in a way they think Warren won't notice. Why, like, why go through all that trouble? Why not just wait until he shows up and arrest him? You know, I, I just, I don't get it. Yeah, it seems like the police at this time have this kind of near obsession with just like getting as high up the ladder as they can. And they, they just, just do so much shit like this. I don't really understand. Um, but like, obviously, Warren, this guy with a photographic memory and all that, like he knows. And when he's arrested and charged, it's like, the biggest conspiracy case for cocaine ever in the UK, and then, obviously, it starts to go south. Warren is said to be so well-informed at that time that he knows the max length for the custom officer's drill bits so he can smuggle his coke accordingly. Wait, clarify, what, is that, what does that mean? So, as, as I understand it, it means that he gets wind of how far customs officials on the border are willing to, like, drill down ah, into okay. stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So thought. he can, like... Choose how, choose how fat these packages are, yeah. Um, this is just one of the reasons Warren gets known as cocky over the years, yeah. But 
nobody's at the time nobody's been caught handling any of these lead ingots and the shipping companies obviously just plead ignorance authorities tried to convict charrington for lying to his handlers and they find over two million dollars in his attic and another million swiss francs in the bedroom he says he's he and warren were just on venezuela on holiday in 91 and this is post-soviet back venezuela by the way going for a coup every day bodies piling up so yeah legit place to get a suntan Basically, though, by 1993, the whole case has fallen to pieces and Warren gets off. As he leaves the court, he reportedly tells the case officer, quote, I'm off to spend my 87 million from the first shipment and you can't fucking touch me. I reckon that's a bit cocky as well. Yeah, it's a solid, solid movie line. Amazed there's not a, fi- a film about this. And I'll tell you who wasn't cocky after the trial, Danny. British cops, that's who. I bet they're rather embarrassed. In fact, I bet they let a, basically let a snitch fob them off and one of Britain's most notorious gangsters slipped through their fingers, even though they've pretty much caught him in the act. Sad. Yeah, what the hell? I mean, this is just totally inept. I, I don't get it. Was the Charrington guy, was he playing them? Or like what? I, are they just really bad at their job? Yeah. He, he is taking the piss. And like, I, I can't really, like he has his own story that's pretty interesting. He ends up getting arrested like in France and then Belgium and Spain, all over the place. And he managed to slip through the authorities' fingers. But I, I think... I'm pretty sure he's behind bars now. I could be wrong, but I'm pretty sure he's locked up. Hey, loyal listeners of this podcast. I want to take a moment to tell you about my new show. It's called Bizarre Times. I'll be exploring everything from bizarre phenomena, places, rituals, people, customs, crimes, and more. There's two new episodes ready for you to dig into right now. And new shows are released weekly. Subscribe to Bizarre Times on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, or wherever you listen to audio. Again, subscribe to Bizarre Times. It's the ultimate feast for the strange and bizarre. Anyway, some coppers then, through this embarrassment, they set up this big sting operation, right? And you expect it to have a pretty cool name. It's called Operation Crayfish. Um, yeah, I'm not sure if this is because of the seaside connection between the British and the Dutch or the ferries shipping coke over from the UK, but I don't know. This thing hopes to bring Britain's cocaine trade, which is flourishing like few other places on earth in the mid-90s, crashing down. At first, Warren's just one of many crims on the list of folks bringing coke into the country, but soon he's at the top. And he's even known as Target One by Interpol or the Teflon Gangster due to his ability to swerve cops at all opportunities, which I'd suggest is a pretty way to do business as a professional criminal. It doesn't rhyme as much as the Teflon Don. It's kind of, you know, just the Brits once again bastardizing something that, that works in America, like British rap. I, I, I'm going to let Stormzy know you said that. <laughs> uh, soon they find out he's living in a flat with his 25-year-old girlfriend, quarterbacking all kinds of deals for every drug imaginable. Um, this is a quote from a police officer from the drug war book, quote, he was really the conduit from which all other traffickers and dealers passed. Everything had Warren's hand in it somewhere. He was the top one. He was the top rung and you had to be tasty to deal with him. A good dealer in your own right. He didn't mix with time wasters. I think that quote would sound way better in my dad's accent, by the way. Maybe I'll get to record him like doing gangster lines for the pod. Watch out Twitter. I mean, these guys who get to the top, like it's always just an amazing mix of 
logistics handling and, and deal making and charm as well. It's it's you know it's a business when it comes down to it. It's not just shooting people. Yeah, I mean, a lot of this is just you know we like to like sometimes the media likes to spin these rosy stories about people doing these crimes out of passion or because of these this like megalomania and there's certainly amount of that but like most of it's just crimes of i don't know necessity opportunity money like it's all about the money uh and this guy loves the stuff and everything crayfish is going to learn through the docks in the netherlands and um is just going to show how big curtis warren is getting and at the time, in the mid-90s, there's a gang war in Liverpool and it's claiming the lives of mobsters and business people. And when Warren's right-hand man, Johnny Phillips, is gunned down, he decides to up sticks and move to the Netherlands permanently. Who, who's fighting who? Is he involved in the fighting? Because I thought he had his hand in everything and was kind of involved in, you know, shaking hands and making deals with everyone. Yeah, he seems like he's kind of like cruising above the whole thing. So this is kind of the mid-level gangsters getting shot up in the Northwest at the time. but like. I guess when Johnny Phillips gets shot dead, um, it's getting a bit too close to home. So he, he up sticks, yeah. Yeah, I imagine the heat. And he shacks it, up. It, I, yeah. I imagine the heat too that's coming on with something like this kind of makes you want to leave and go somewhere where you can kind of just relax a little bit more. Yeah, I don't know if the cops are waiting for him to like sell nuclear weapons to the Russians or something. But um, yeah, either way, he shacks up at the villa in the small town of Sassenheim, which is kind of equidistant from Amsterdam and The Hague. And he just becomes the latest in the Scouts criminal diaspora who fled for Amsterdam in the era. He brings his drugs in via Rotterdam or Antwerp, which, like I said, are the two biggest places for drug shipments in Europe. At this whole time, like Dutch and British cops are just seizing or tracking cocaine, heroin, weed shipments of hundreds of tons. And it just doesn't seem to matter to Warren. He's just getting so big by this point that his friends say he's becoming a drug trade household name. And a, a friend says in the book, actually, like, Calvin Klein. So he's, he's pretty massive. And just when it seems like this Teflon mob boss can't put a foot wrong, that's when he slips up. Warren has made a deal for 400 keys of coke with the Cali cartel. He's their main man in Europe by this point, by the way, to arrive from Venezuela to Rotterdam in Metalingots again. From Rotterdam, it's supposed to be sent to Bulgaria to be dissolved in wine and shipped off for sale. But someone doesn't pay the freight. And this massive shipment, it just sits there in the docks from the Netherlands. Warren makes a mistake when he faxes a message to clear it, which links it to him, and cops pounce. They smash into his villa and they arrest him in his boxer shorts. Further raids reveal 1.5 tonnes of hash, 60 kilos of heroin, 50 kilos of ecstasy, hand grenades, three guns, gas canisters and a load of cash. The whole haul is worth an estimated 1.25 mil, which I think in those days with the exchange rate is probably over 200 million. Quite a lot. Yeah, I think you, you said 1.25. I think you meant 125 million. But yeah, I mean, he's no... Oh, yeah. Yeah, 200 million. Like, it's not, this isn't small-time shit. Like, this guy is an international narco level. Yeah, he's, he's big. Um, and, and surely this time there is no way out for Warren. And yeah, no, there's not. In 1997, a Dutch court sentences him to 12 years without parole. 12 years? Like, that's nothing for that. Yeah, welcome to Europe. <laughs> this, is, this is what you get. Um, and, and, like, the case also shows that a corrupt cop is feeding info to Warren, which I guess is no surprise, I guess, given how famous he's been for slipping away for justice for so long. So, yeah, by this point, Curtis Warren is locked up in a Dutch jail. Probably not the worst on earth, but probably not where he's planned to be as a kid growing up in Liverpool. And folks are coming at him. 
1999, he has a fight with a Turkish murderer, convicted murderer, and he kills the guy. This gets him another four years on his sentence for manslaughter. Warren agrees to pay the Dutch government 8 million bucks from the proceeds of his crime. But seeing as the stuff they discovered alone was like 1,000% more, he's definitely managed to stash the vast majority of his cash offshore. And this is probably a good time to mention, by the way, the interview bonus we did with uh, journalist Oliver Bullo uh, this week, actually, about his book Moneyland, or last week, I think, when this is coming out. Uh, like 8% of all money on earth is off the books. What the fuck? Listen to that interview, by the way. It's a really fun one to do. Yeah, fair warning. His audio is not great, but it's, uh, it's still really interesting yeah. stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah, the audio quality is bad, but it's a really, really good interview. Anyway, Warren is moved around six different Dutch prisons after that. And in 2005, he even appears on the Sunday Times Rich List. It's the only drug trafficker to ever have done so. The Rich List is something I don't think has aged that well. Basically, porn for the landed gentry. Bro, people still love like the Forbes list. I mean, that's a thing that's aged pretty well. It's a big deal when it happens. Oh, uh, yeah, I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. Everyone loves the drug dealer on the Forbes list. Yeah. yeah. Is anyone on there at the moment? I don't know. I feel like Chapa was... I don't know if he was on... Yeah, he must have been on I feel like I feel like he was on there somewhere, yeah. Seichi Lot must be there. I mean, I guess... I don't know if he's going to make it. I, I guess he's making no money in the States, right? So, yeah. Um, but yeah, it's pretty crazy that Warren made it on and like a measure of the drug empire this guy's built by this point. Um, anyway, in 20, uh, 2007, he's out of prison. So I guess he hasn't even served like two thirds of his sentence, which is normal in, in Europe. Um, and he heads back to Liverpool. And by this time, the city is Britain's drug capital, definitely. And it's pioneered this form of drug trafficking known as county lines. Now, People may be well aware of this, but this is a particularly effective and pernicious form of dealing, whereby major narcs get product out of major cities as quickly as possible and into ta- rural towns and villages, usually with young, vulnerable boys as the mules, some of whom are made to do the running as part of some debt bondage. County Lines is the principal form of British drug trafficking today, and the NCA, the National Crime Agency, which is kind of like a domestic FBI, reckons there are 3,000 routes across the country. What's the, what's the point of it? Like, is it because all the customers are in the rural areas? Because if there's, you know, the dividing up a big shipment into smaller amounts, so if someone gets caught, there's less of a penalty. Like, why, why do they, why is county lines, country lines, county lines, whatever it's called, why is it a thing? Yeah, it's pretty much the latter. So it's like, the more you can divide up a shipment, the more people you can get involved, the less the cops can kind of trace it to one source. Um, you know, if if it's kids that you've kind of got on a ne- got on a leash, doing it, then um, then even less so. I think it just works to to kind of spread out the product across the country and make it kind of accessible to as many places as possible. I mean, like the the accessibility of drugs in the UK is insane. Like you could be in a two horse town in the middle of nowhere in a moor somewhere up north, and you could probably get cocaine delivered within half an hour like if the cocaine industry in the uk is like nuts um it's i mean i think it's the second biggest market for cocaine in the world behind the us uh, and a ton of other drugs we're gonna have like vice drugs reporter max daly on by the way uh when i'm back from my trip to ethiopia um he's gonna be i'm going there tomorrow that (laughs) to give you some uh context he's gonna be telling us all about this stuff and how it's evolved in the pandemic yeah, I'm temporary, temporarily rescinding my vice band, so I think Max has some really cool stuff to share. Yeah, sorry about that, man. I just <laughs> couldn't, I couldn't hold back on it. Um, 
back to Warren. So here we get to one of the oddest bits of his legacy, right? When Warren gets back to the northwest of Britain, he makes an almost immediate beeline for Jersey, the old Jersey. This is the original, the one and only Jersey, nothing like this Jersey. Oh, no. So this Jersey, the first Jersey, by the way, it's the biggest of the Channel Islands. This is a group of eight islands just off the coast of Normandy, France. Jersey, Guernsey, Alderney, Sark, Herm, Breshu, Yetu, and Lihu. <laughs> Jersey and Guernsey are the two most populated of these islands, and they're both technically known as Ballywicks, and they're not technically considered part of the United Kingdom, which I think is similar to the Isle of Man. I'm, I'm learning so much about the UK. I mean, it's mostly gibberish, but I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm learning a lot, you know? I think, I think if I want anyone to learn anything about Britain is that most of it is fucking gibberish. Yeah. Um, I just want to like, take a t quick digression here because I, I feel like I end up explaining this over drinks a lot. And like, the f Great Britain is like way, way weirder than it gets credit for. First off, Great Britain, that name, that's the big island. That's not the nation. The nation is the United Kingdom of Great Britain and Northern Ireland <clears throat> with like... Great, uh, with Northern Ireland just basically being a colony on the island of Ireland, okay? So within that, there's England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland. They're countries. And then there are territories like the Isle of Man, the Channel Islands, which are considered crown protectorates. So basically, yeah, like more colonies. Um, Channel Islands, I'm guessing they were stolen from France at one point. And each of these places had its own language, history, of course, culture. Yeah, I um, actually ten. I, 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 <laughs> I like I, t I tuned out already, but um. Yep. Yeah, I imagine most people have. Yeah, but no, keep going. I think it's good. I think it's good. Our our our, view, our listeners want to learn some stuff. Yeah, I mean, like, there's ten languages considered indigenous to the UK, of which English is obviously the main one. But there's Welsh, Gaelic, Irish, Cornish, Manx, Shelter, and others. If you get the chance to visit the UK, try watching telly in one of these languages. It's actually, like really cool or maybe super uncool and nerdy and just saying i do um and on top of this you've got like celtic roman viking norman all kinds of history and culture mixed in there's this brilliant 1701 poem about Brit britain being historically this proud mongrel nation uh i don't know how pc that phrase would be but i think it's kind of cool right it's like it's always been a multicultural pl place so fuck off the bmp anyway dungeons and dragons right that is britain Anyway, that concludes my British culture lesson. Like, I don't know. Do you think we have any listeners still still listening? <laughs> if we do, I mean, if we do, they're probably the ones that play Dungeons and Dragons. Do you not play this game? Like, loads of people do it in Berlin now. I, it's become like new call. I, I I mean, I never did. Uh, it seems like I th I th it's popular in the states. I just never, I never did. Uh, what I'm, what I'm saying is, you know, if they said that there were wizards and witches and fucking dragons, I don't know. I would not be surprised in Britain. And Jersey, right? This is this really weird little part of it. And it's this little island off the French coast. It's also a tax haven. You know, is it making sense that these Liverpudlian drug dealers are like really into this place? And this island really likes drugs. And the prices are sky high, right? I was talking to a local last year and they were telling me prices are like six to 10 times higher than they are on the mainland. So weirdly, this little place, home to 100,000 people, it's basically the holy grail for British narcos. And of those narcs, the Liverpudlians have been trying to stake a claim in Jersey for yonks. They're even doing it today. It's like a proper thing. Here's a former gangster speaking to the Echo in December 2019. Quote, All the hurly-burly that happens in big cities does not happen there. 
Nothing happens there. So that makes it attractive. Anyway, in 2007, Warren wants to supply Jersey with a million pounds of marijuana and take over the entire island's drug market. That seems a bit excessive, right? Like if it's 100,000 people, that's like 10 pounds of marijuana per person. I'm talking pounds the money. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Yeah. I get so it So that's what, like 1.2 million bucks? I mean, I guess that's not a huge amount, but for an island, 100,000 yeah, people no, that, quite a lot. That adds up. It's, just, it's, a, lot, it's a lot more reasonable than, than uh, 10 pounds per person, like 10 weight pounds per person. Yeah. He's like, he's like doing an Uber, right? He's going in. He's got all the backing. He's just like wipe out the competition in one go. But in coming up against the island's police, he's kind of made another pretty fatal misstep. And this time it's not because of who he is, but it's because of who the Jersey cops are. Now, like I said, Jersey is this weird place, right? It's not in the EU. I think it's in the Commonwealth, which is like the former British Empire. It's a big deal, by the way. We have our own Olympics and it's quite big. Um, and it enjoys a fair bit of independence where its police is concerned. And cases are often heard by these lay court judges who are known as jurats or jura. I don't know. It might be French. Pretty weird. Anyway, its authorities are known to violate European conventions on customs, migrations. They're a little bit cowboy, basically. And they set up Operation Koala, no idea why it's called that, um, to grab Warren. They just bug everything. A baby's pram, his car. They even cross international borders with one wiretap on a hire car from France, which is like totally against the law in the EU, by the way. And that comes up in the, the court case that he's going to get embroiled in. None of this makes any sense, but I guess, you know, keep going. Is it... Is it like, I mean, it kind of reminds me of Corsica in a way. Is it similar to that sort of situation where it's almost like its own identity? Yeah, totally. Um, and, and I was like looking into this because I, I, I like the idea of pitching a story about like the Sopranos, but actually in the old Jersey. <laughs> um, and, I, and I got a couple of editors that were interested in it, but they were like, ah, it's happened like ages ago. So I couldn't do the story, which pissed me off because I want to go to Jersey. But um, yeah, like. Basically, you've got this giant gangster, biggest one in Britain. He's come onto this strange little island in the middle of nowhere. And there's these cops on the island. They've got their own rules. And it's a pretty good fight. You know, it's a pretty even fight. And Warren spends four consecutive weekends in Jersey when he comes out of jail until in July, cops pounce on him and they arrest him in broad daylight. His trial lasts just three weeks of an expected six. And he's flown immediately back to Belmarsh Prison, which is the no most notorious jail in the UK in southeast London, just minutes from my mum and dad, so shout out to them. Um, a Jersey sent judge sentences Warren to 13 years in, a, in his absence, and it later demands he pays back £185 million in the biggest proceeds of crime case ever, which is probably like about $300 million in those days. Um, and he won't pay it back to this day, and he's still behind bars age 58. His barrister, by the way, told the court about the cash, quote, bearing in mind Warren is in prison with the communications restrictions that entails, even if he had this amount of money, how is he possibly be able to settle this amount of money in 28 days? It just shows a failure to grasp reality. Uh, and I'd just like to say that I think, if I recall, I think this case went all the way to like the Supreme Court in the UK. And this judge, I think like even had a massive go at the police and said that in future they cannot do this kind of thing. But, you know, we're going to let this go, international wiretapping. So, yeah, he kind of got screwed over there. Um, 
and this is almost where this story ends, right? He tried, he failed. Um, he came, he saw, he didn't conquer. But Curtis Warren, there's a kind of small footnote, and it came around this time last year. And that's when a female prison officer was sent down herself for having a sexual affair for Warren at his cell in a prison in Durham near Newcastle on the Scottish border. So this woman, Stephanie Smith-White, has a tattoo of Warren Dunn. Seems she was pretty into him. Um, and so I want to give this like episode a bit of a comic relief at the end. And I'm going to let the BBC play us out. Feel free to add your own backing music. Quote, Starford becomes suspicion of her relationship with him and a surveillance operation got underway, the court heard. They were seen passing notes, which were highly sexualized, the court heard, and Warren tried to eat one from her when officers tried to retrieve it. It was also found they called each other 213 times in three months. When interviewed by detectives, Smith-White was said to be devastated but hoped there was an outside chance the relationship could continue. Defending Smith-White, Andrew Nixon said she made a, quote, catastrophic error of judgment and had, quote, fallen in love with the wrong person. He continues, Smith-White had denied cutting a hole in her uniform trousers for sexual purposes, but the sentencing judge said it was hard to imagine why else it was there. Isn't that just like a beautiful tale of love and hardship? Anyway, that's Curtis Warren, probably Britain's biggest gangster ever, and uh, yeah, I hope we've uh, learned something about how weird Britain is, at least through this kind of gangster's life. Definitely. And I kind of feel like you should have led with this story and, and led about the hole cutting in the trousers because that, I mean, I, I want to know more right off the bat. But yeah. Cutting of the trousers is brilliant, eh? Yeah. 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 So yeah, that is, that is Curse Warren. Again, we might have another couple of weeks of a break, but don't forget about us. Uh, we have some really good stuff in the pipeline. We've got some, con- some, some like negotiations going on where I think we're going to be able to do this probably a lot more and, 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 uh, and, and better if that's even possible after we learned about, you know, Gorency and whatever How? else, but also merch reading list, all that stuff. Interviews are going to keep being put on the Patreon. We've got one going up today, probably next week. We've got some good people in the pipeline and yeah. Thanks again for listening to the underworld podcast. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.